This is a strategist episode 999.9999999. My name is Dave Belcher. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, the counting metric never fails. Ten fingers, eight nines. Not bad. Yeah, I, I, I stopped counting. I have no idea if you actually counted the right number. I you thought he was one short. I thought he was. It's one almost short. like I could say it doesn't matter, which which seems <laughs> on brand. Which seems on brand. Uh, you know what, Carter? Do you know what else doesn't matter? Uh, Capri Sun. Now they're doing a voluntary recall because they have cleaning solution in five thousand cases of their cherry Capri Sun. Uh, why is it voluntary? You know why? Because it doesn't matter. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I mean, well, good, good, good. Thought I'd I'm just not drop drinking that info. a Capri Sun, which makes me very happy. You know what? We drinking. can we can go deep on this. We could go very deep on this. You know why, Corey? Capri Sun. Do you know who their parent company is? Uh, is it Flair Airlines? Because it's that would Kraft be a twist. Heinz. The same assholes. Okay, Uh-oh. that have not gotten the bun and hot dog situation together. Okay, they're oh, trying wow. to, but they're failing. Interesting. So wait, Kraft Heinz is the same company, and they're pretending that they were doing a peace summit between two of their divisions. I think I missed yeah. that during the whole hot dog bun conversation. They Disastrous. they pretended to do a bit of a peace summit. It's like they owned two of the companies, but ultimately didn't want anyone to know. Kraft Heinz. I mean, sneaky, sneaky, Astrid. and. Uh, Recently, sneaking in cleaning solution in their cherry flavored Capri Sun. Oh, um, Carter, welcome back. Welcome thank back. You. Probably thank you. an accident. Probably didn't sneak it in uh, just for the <laughs> for the legal protections here. Okay, thank you it's, so much. We missed your libelous ways with potential pseudo sponsors. <laughs> I'm sorry, Carter was still here. Very much libelous. Very much constantly libelous. Very well behave, behaved this week. Very Were well you, I, on now, the Patreon special that you haven't listened to. Yeah, no, we have to mention we have. Uh, Corey, is it what eleven hours or eleven episodes? Uh, also yeah. known as strategist dozen, uh, and and nearly fourteen hours of uh, which is also a strategist dozen, both eleven and fourteen. <laughs> uh, both both are called a strategist dozen. Uh, eleven episodes, fourteen hours of content available for Patreon subscribers, including uh, what was it? Another episode of of Carter and Hogan on? Yeah, that's uh, just since June. That's just since June, my friend. There's tons June. of stuff. And, what happened last week? Give me a bit of a summary. What, what topics did you include? Uh, we've, uh, maybe no we'll help clue. me planning for what uh, happens. So I don't know, like in the next 30 seconds. I remember the soundboard didn't work very well at the end. Yeah. Okay. Soundboard yeah. has created problems for us. Um, I did think you guys we talk talked about essay about contest? Essays. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was some um, yep. conversation about an essay. Uh, we may have talked about something, two other things, and I can't remember what they were. I think we, told, we really talked about good. Danielle Smith. We talked about Pierre Poliev, whether we thought they actually were unassailable. Oh, that's okay. right. Yeah. That's good stuff. That was What good did we stuff. decide? Well, you're going to have to listen. I think people have you're to You're going to have to pay $6. You're going to have to I should subscribe. I should listen to that. Um, yeah. uh, that's good. Um, well, that also throws out my entire show, uh, which uh, means I have to talk about this. Let's move on to our first segment. Our first segment, leading from behind, Corey. They have done it. The Alberta Liberals have done it. They have selected absolutely the best leader possible. In fact, I think their newest leader will be their best leader because Corey Hogan, it's no one. No one is leading the Alberta Liberals. Uh, As a former executive director of the Alberta Liberals, um, do you want to issue a moment of silence or do you want to go straight into the analysis of what a no-leader Alberta party will do? Will it overperform and outperform a leadered Alberta party? Or should we take that moment of silence that I recommended up the top? Yeah, listen, I think the thing about the Alberta Liberal Party people need to appreciate is it's been... We did not go with the moment of silence. I just want everyone to recognize that Corey did not choose that. Go ahead, Corey. It's it's been dead for years is the reason why. And just every couple of years, Albertans stumble across the body once more in a state of deeper decomposition. That's that's all I can say about the Alberta Liberals at this point. They haven't been a, uh, you know, a sincere, legitimate political force since... Well, for sure, since, uh, you know, they were they were wiped out in 2019, but I would argue even 2015 when they were down to one MLA, uh, which was David Swan. You know, at the 2015 election, David Swan uh, at his concession speech was jubilant, talking about how they did it finally. I mean, he was the only person who was reelected from the Alberta Liberals, but his enthusiasm for an end of the PCs could not could not be missed. And I think this is fundamentally the problem with the Liberals. Um, is they were sort of defined by opposition, right? And uh, wherever the PCs were, they were going to be somewhere else. You saw that through the 90s. You saw that in the 2000s. 
And I have described them many times, including on this show, as a loose confederation of people who hate each other marginally less than they hate the conservatives. And so once the conservatives lost in 2015, they they lost what little reason to exist they had. And that support went to the, um, you know, by and large, to the Notley government. I'm sure there were a couple of people who went to the, uh, you know, one of the two conservative options. And then there's, you know, maybe 1% of the population who's holding a candle for an Alberta Liberal Party to return. But that seems pretty unlikely, especially now, given that they were unable to find a leader to run in this contest. So they still have the same interim leader, John Rogavine, who's a Calgary lawyer. He's a really nice fellow, by the way. I've known him for many years. Um, but it, it's... It, I have so many questions. Why would you run a leadership contest without knowing even a single person would enter it being top of the list? So maybe I'll just shut up and see how Carter reacts to this. Are we going to do like a whole, are we actually doing a segment on this? I guess no, I've actually got one serious yeah. question, uh, but now you okay. now because you've asked, I'm going to ask a stupid question to Carter. Carter, how does it feel like, <laughs> how does it feel uh, to you personally um, that the Alberta liberals are perhaps the only party in, in the province of Alberta that hasn't cut you a check for your services? How did that, how does that make you feel? Uh, as someone who's worked with every party, uh, almost every party thus far. I have not worked with the Alberta Liberal Party, and I have not worked with the Alberta NDP. Oh, you've worked so with the NDP. So there's, there's, uh, there's a vast swath of parties. Oh, and I also haven't worked with the uh, UCP. So really, when you look at active parties, okay, well. I've worked with very few. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really quite upset <laughs> with your uh, allegation of uh, you know, being something of a political whore. Uh, very upset. <laughs> Uh, Carter, uh, but I can understand why you'd be lashing out. I mean, Corey and I <laughs> did manage to cobble together the $6,000. We did get the signatures and we did submit your paperwork on time and you were rejected. It was upsetting for everybody. Um, it turns out you can't run for the leadership of three parties simultaneously. Uh, so you, the, you mean, the, you, mean us. Yeah. you mean a poster uh, with a paper clip of six thousand dollars attached to it just doesn't work? You, you yeah, they like really that? liked the poster. They really liked. They the liked poster. the poster. Uh, they but, felt but like the it was how, on brand. How are poster sales going? Just want to let you. Uh, uh, Strategist.ca. <laughs> yeah, you can buy a poster. Uh, Zane for leader. Uh, how are they going, Corey? Uh, you know what? They're infinitely better off than they were last time you asked. We uh, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, that's good to know. You probably uh, shouldn't means... ask too much more than that. Yeah. Okay, thank you, <laughs> Carter. Actually, serious question here: ramifications for the NDP. Does it? Is there any? Because here's what inevitably happens in this province, Corey. Regardless of who the leader of the Alberta Liberals is, there's a group of people. What is it like? Three percent? Four percent? No, five percent? Not even. No. Okay. Was it? How much is it? So to answer your question, no, it has no effect on. I wasn't even asking you the question. I wasn't asking. I was was asking Carter the question. Let me answer. Let me answer, Corey, because mine is going to be completely different than yours. No, it has no impact (laughs) on the NDP. It doesn't have an impact. Of all. Here's, here's the actual question. It's, it's been dead. for It's been dead since 2015. Yeah, you, Arguably, been my... dead since No, no, but here's, here's the actual question. Will the Alberta Liberals be a party now, next next election? Right? They didn't, they didn't get a leader. What are the ramifications here on that front, Carter? That's what I'm trying to ask. They it, should shut there... it down. But they should who, shut how, it down. Explain to me the choice there. Like, what happens? Like, how does that choice get made? There, so there's, there's 14 people currently. I'm making yeah. up the number 14, but it's not a big number. And it's not actually much smaller than the number of people that are in charge of a viable party, right? There's a very small number of people who are involved with with any party managing the board level and managing the governance and making sure that all the forms are submitted on time and all of those types of things. And that very small group of people needs to get together and decide whether or not this is the volunteer project that they want to spend their, their time doing. They don't want to do this. They shouldn't want to do this. There's no... Uh, there's no market desire, if you will, for the product, and they should shut it down and say, we gave it a good run. Um, you know, the Alberta Liberals, uh, were, were, you know, governed the province at its inception, and now th- that's over and move on, find something else, form another party or, uh, you know, come up with a different hobby. I, I've chosen mountain biking, but they, they can find a different <laughs> they can find a different hobby. You know, I'm taking, I'm taking your hand, Carter. Move on. Find something else. I will move on. Corey, to be clear, the fact that the, no one ran to be full time leader of the Alberta Liberal Party um, doesn't automatically mean that they will not be appearing on said ballots in the next election. Right. Just yeah. so we're clear, just so people can understand that. What, what are the actual what did and did not happen as a result of this? Yeah, they're still a political party. They still have an interim leader. They they had a failed leadership search, which is a bit unheard of. Because again, why start a leadership contest 
when you don't necessarily have any candidates there. They could have just maintained an interim period a bit longer. But saying they ran 51 candidates out of 87, they got less than 1% of the vote. The person who ran in what was a liberal incumbent seat, their leader, David Kahn, I think came in fourth. That was the right. most Mountain embarrassing part. He came yeah. in fourth in what was a liberal incumbent seat. They are they are not a political force in this province anymore, which does not mean they are not forever, right? There have been times, for example, when um, the uh, the PCs were a totally spent force and there was this young Calgary lawyer who thought maybe he could turn that into something. And you know him as Peter Lougheed, a very legendary leader in Alberta. Similarly, the Liberal Party went without leader for, this is not the first time this has happened to them. Let's put it that way. But uh, in mayor of Edmonton, Lawrence Decor decided it might be an interesting vehicle. And he, he took it over from uh, Nick Taylor, who was you know, keeping the lights on for the Liberals in the late 70s here in the province, and turned it into the official opposition, almost turned it into the government. It's not impossible that somebody at some point in the future will see this vehicle and say, well, this is a strong national brand. Maybe we can do something with it. But in order for any of that to happen, the liberals have to answer some pretty basic questions, the top of the list being, why do you exist? And mm-hmm. um, unless there's this strong force that is going to pull it together, um, it's it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere just like all of the other political parties in Alberta that you never hear about that exist. There's a huge swath of them, right? And uh, it's not uncommon on the prairies. There's not a liberal party really in any real sense in Saskatchewan anymore. There's barely one in Manitoba. The one in British Columbia is is thinking of dropping the name. It's not really liberal. Yeah. It's, it's not unusual in Western Canada to find that there's no liberal party. It's not a requirement that a liberal party exists. And certainly, I don't think its existence or not in the most legal technical sense is particularly relevant at this point. So... I mean, this is probably the most conversation, not just us, but I mean them not getting a leader that the liberals have gotten in years, in years, uh, because it just seems like such a falling on your face moment. But it's no different than uh, when Ross Sherman ran for a political party he was not allowed to run for. Right? <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> it's <laughs> sideshow politics. It's interesting. It's it's pretty cringy. You like look through fingers like, oh, God, is this actually happening? But it's not going to change the course of Alberta history. I I, I personally thought that young lawyer, uh, PC lawyer, you're talking about was uh, Doug Schweitzer. I, th- I thought that story was going <laughs> I very differently. So Corey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you guys for humoring on, uh, me on that. That that segment, of course, brought to you by Flair Airlines. Flair Airlines, the Alberta Liberals of the Sky. Yeah. Let's move it on not, to our next segment. Not, <laughs> okay, it wasn't okay. Keep moving. Do you want to say something? Yeah, no, I, no, we're I not going to get sued for that. Not one. sponsored that by. Good. Not sponsored yeah. by them, but okay. Our next segment. Let's move it on to our next segment. Family affair, guys. Oh, here we go. The family office needs some help. Oh, we God. need we need some assistance because Alberta Premier, yes, still Alberta Premier, uh, even though some may like to call him acting leader. We'll get to that in a second. Oh yeah. Uh, Jason Kenny has so far declined to pick a favorite in the race to succeed him, but he said on his radio show, which he still has, by the way, um, that. The platform plank um, for Alberta sovereignty, so to speak, uh, is absolutely... The Alberta Sovereignty Act. Yeah, 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 yeah. The platform plank known as the Alberta Sovereignty Act, as Corey said, uh, is nuts. Uh, he was appearing on, on the radio show, as I mentioned, uh, targeting Danielle Smith. He also said that even if the legislature, w- the legislature passed the law, the lieutenant governor would refuse to give royal assent and Alberta would become a laughingstock. We'll get into the whole back and forth between him and Smith. Uh, but guys, I feel like there are more important things to discuss, which is uh, the mention of <laughs> Lieutenant Governor, um, which always perks uh, my ears. It has for years, uh, namely yeah. two years. Uh, and and <laughs> uh, it's because of uh, the the situation that uh, my office, by extension, would face. So, Stephen Carter, could we yeah. actually be in some sort of constitutional crisis? Is Kenny just adding gasoline to it? Uh, chirping from the sidelines because he's going to be leaving or is or are the prospects of the Alberta Sovereignty Act as Corey's called it by its official formal name enough on the surface that's all we really know right now on the surface to actually create a version of a constitutional crisis in this province what do you think yeah absolutely it is I mean and uh, we also talked about another potential constitutional crisis on our last episode so we'll get to that eventually here uh, but yeah, I mean, 
you can't pass legislation that is unconstitutional. Well, you can pass legislation that's unconstitutional, but in the in historic sense, um, the LG of Alberta has taken action in the past that has prevented uh, non-constitutional legislation from being signed into law, and that is to refer the law to the Supreme Court of Canada, where they can weigh in prior to the LG giving royal assent. Um, you'll note, of course, everybody who took their social studies classes, that you don't get a law just simply by passing it through the legislature. You have to give it royal assent. And the the person, the, the Queen's representative in Alberta is, is your mother-in-law. Um, so off we go. Um, she has to then make that determination. Most of the time, we don't have to make that determination. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. of the time, the, the government of the day is keenly aware of when they may be get, skirting close to the line. For example, this is good, you're going to love this. When we passed the uh, 0.05 law, when I met with Mad Canada, um, we passed the 0.05 law knowing that there may be a court in the future that was unable to uh, declare it um, a you know constitutional. And I think that we have had some setbacks sub- subsequently. I also uh, yeah, on the I just want to let people know that 0.05 is also the percentage of our audience who hasn't heard this story. But keep going, Carter. <laughs> this is, this is a different Christ. element of the story. <laughs> yes, but I just different want element you. of the story. But it's not unheard of for a, legisla- for a legislature to get close to where the line is. And the difference between that and what the Alberta Sovereignty Act and the three pieces of legislation that the Lieutenant Governor dealt with in 1937 is that in 1937, they said, you know, this is clearly unconstitutional. I can't give it royal consent. I can't. So that's different than I don't want to or I won't. I can't give it royal consent, uh, assent without the Supreme Court weighing in. And that's what I think we'd be faced with with the Sovereignty Act. Um, so there you go. That's a, Court, that's your, a thing your thoughts got. on that same top line question. Is this enough meat on the bone, at least from what we know, to create a uh, possibility of a constitutional crisis in some ways? Yeah, well, constitutional crisis is one of those phrases that's thrown a lo- around a lot. But really, yeah. all it means is that the Constitution doesn't clearly define what's going to happen next, either in its reading or in the application of it. So could this be a constitutional crisis? Yeah, of course it could, because it's a you know it's not actually that ambiguous at all. But the the government of Alberta is claiming they're just not going to enforce federal laws in the province of Alberta, which is you know deeply unconstitutional. But the challenge becomes, how does the federal government stop that? Because at the end of the day, laws need to be enforced by individuals. And so uh, obviously, it's something that a lot of constitutional experts have weighed in on pretty universally have said, as it's being understood, as Danielle Smith has talked about it um, in in concept, as people around her have talked about it, it's unconstitutional and it would precipitate this constitutional crisis you're talking about. What I think in some ways Jason Kenney was trying to do was almost will into existence the idea that this thing would not even be passed. And clearly it was part of an overall bundle on Saturday on his radio show of putting some serious doubt as to the the wisdom of this approach, right? The laughingstock comments, the the fact that it could create this constitutional crisis and maybe even the lieutenant governor refusing to sign. And God help, I mean, thank God, let's put it that way, that uh, that your mother-in-law has actual lawyers supporting her and not just the three of us. But the, uh, the um, you know, this situation will largely be based on precedent. People will point to the 1937 situation where a number of social credit bills were not given the royal assent we were talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... It, that's it, it's all uncharted territory. It's all pretty wild stuff. And uh, as a bit of a side note, here in Alberta, some Albertans will be aware that we have a government house that our lieutenant governor does not live in. That right? is correct. It's just there. is a It's a formal kind of like meeting space, and that's because <clears throat> in retribution for all of this action, where the lieutenant governor withheld royal assent, they unfunded the lieutenant governor's office and kicked them out. They refused to pay the heating bill for this house and. Uh, you know, it it just classic Alberta pettiness there. But um, these things, these things just, they go forward. It You know, you, it's hard to say that this is exactly like the case before. It's hard to say people would act in the same way. I mean, I can't help but think, for example, that at the time that was sent to the Supreme Court of Canada, that wasn't even the final court of appeal. If you go to the Privy mm. Council uh, of the, you know, the House of Lords in the United Kingdom uh, in 1938. So, yeah, we're in um 
we're in uncharted territory. It has been almost a hundred years since that happened. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that the premier was trying to to plant some serious doubts that this thing could even be passed if it were passed. Um, many things to pick up on there, Carter, and I'll get to you in, in a second. I sort of respond to a few things Corey said. So you're referring to 1937 when the lieutenant governor, when the province refused to pay for the power or electricity, kicked the LG out. Um, yeah, that was uh, actually that was in 1938. The, 38, the uh, okay, triggering yeah. action was in 37. 37. Um, you know, that's what happened to the LG. You know, what they don't talk about, Carter, is what happened to the LG son-in-law back then. Unspeakable. <laughs> no acts, one, okay. Yeah. Unspeakable yeah. acts. Uh, and Corey also mentioned the House of Lords. I have to say, uh, I just got to go see the House of Lords. It was very cool. Yeah. It was very, very yeah. cool. Uh, it's um, it's smaller than you think. Carter, it's no, it's not. Than, it's, it's exactly it's, the size I think it is. No, it's it's smaller than you think, Carter. Corey, Corey, <laughs> um, does the online tour, so he knows the size. But Carter, you and I didn't know the size. It's much smaller than we. No, think. I always overestimate size. <laughs> Carter, let's talk about the players here, <laughs> I, I, because this is a strategy podcast when it isn't a Capri Sun podcast. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the the players of the situation. Corey brought up Jason Kenny. Let's start with him. Strategic motivation. Tell me what it was for him. Was it was it to poison the well? Was it legacy? Was it I wanted to, I want to be ahead on this? Was it to actually derail Danielle Smith? All of the above? None of the above? Like, give me a strategy motivation here. What do you think it is, and what would have made it better if if it is what you you're you're, you're highlighting? You know, we rail on uh, Jason Kenny all the time. Uh, we're not fans of Jason Kenny. Jason Kenny is not on my Christmas card list. I am not on his. However, he has a deep respect for parliamentary tradition. He has a deep respect uh, for government in general. Um, he understands and he has made his life pursuit the pursuit of better government. Now, we will disagree on what better government looks like. We will disagree on how better government is implemented by Jason Kenney. But we cannot disagree and we cannot fault him for his, his honest um, view that government is a, is a good um, you know, a good structure. And that is the, that's what we, we have to go with. So I think that, you know, we have, uh, we have Jason Kenny feeling like uh, he wants to re reflect the truth um, against a leader in, in Danielle Smith that is, that gives zero shits about the truth. You know, she doesn't care about process. She doesn't care about precedent. She's just out there to win an election. And, She's spewing shit all over Jason Kenny's shoes. So he's just not going to let that happen. And that's where we are. That's where we are. So it's a little bit frustrating for, uh, for Jason, I think. And that's, that's where we are now. Or, you know, when we did our live show in Edmonton, I recall specifically, both of you said, Jason Kenny won't be able to stay out of it. He just, he just, he, there's like just a yeah. part of him that he just won't. Be. Does this count as that? Of course, absolutely. It does. It does. Yeah. Like even even considering the situation where I shouldn't say a normal person because I, I don't want to be disparaging, but a uh, a person with perhaps more conventional takes on politics would be like, you got to call this out. Like this is kind of nuts. Like you still think that this was him. He just couldn't help himself and had to say this. Well, of course, and you and can strategically look at it, so though. Hey, you can look at it strategically. You can look at it as no fucks to give at this point. Mm. Um, I'm sure he's not at all a fan of this particular approach um, as much as he has skirted towards the line on things like his referendum. You know, I, I worked for Jason Kenney. I I've heard him talk about it. His view there was a theory of constitutionalism that most people would reject, but it wasn't, it wasn't just saying we're going to ignore the constitution. It was this idea mm -hmm. that, well, because of what the Supreme court said in the nineties about the Quebec referendum, uh, and this duty to negotiate that may exist under the Constitution, we will have a referendum and that will force the duty to negotiate in the rest of the country on other matters, not just the breaking up of the country, mm. not just secession, but also the idea of equalization, the idea of, um, you know, whatever you want it to be. Um, he believed you could trigger that conversation using a referendum with a clear majority as long as you hit that Supreme Court standard. So that's Jason Kenney's version of this. And it's frustrating to a lot of people. I can feel Stephen Carter's frustration about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, what, what Danielle Smith is talking about doing really is the next level out, right? This is saying, well, we're just not going to do the things that the federal government does. 
And there is no kind of constitutional authority for that. There, you're, you can't point to anything and say that there's a constitutional right to that. So I just believe that it, it's a view of the Constitution that as much as some people think Jason Kenney plays fast and loose with it, this is really next level stuff. This is not even trying to create like an intellectual reason that this is just a different interpretation of the constitution that's backed up by case law or, or whatever, right? That's, you know, Jason Kenney's is i I'm in a minority opinion about the constitution. Daniel Smith's is I, I don't want to follow the constitution. Yeah. yeah I don't care about the constitution. And that's, that's no. very, very different. The other thing I will say though, is I, I'm hearing all sorts of conversations and, you know, acrimony around Jason Kenney's 51.4%. And I think people with hindsight have said, Danielle Smith may have been the source of a number of those votes against. I have no idea if that's true or not. We've talked about that. that mm-hmm, that's starting mm-hmm. to become kind of a feeling. Yeah. And if that is a feeling that exists and it's held by the premier in any way, shape or form, I'm sure he's not feeling a lot of personal love towards her and wouldn't mind throwing a couple of bombs that way. And then the third is he just can't help himself. Right. Yeah. If someone asked the question. He's gonna, he's gonna say it. It's the kind of the standard Jason Kenny disease where he will give the answer. And in the moment it will be kind of, tactically like sticking the knife but again it goes to this idea of was it good strategy does it actually make it less likely for danielle smith to be elected i think the jury's out on that this is the question i want to pose to you carter because now we've got a fixed universe as of last week uh while i was away if i'm not mistaken guys membership sales have halted right we're done with membership it was the 12th yeah okay so carter fixed universe day after kenny comes out on the program calls this you know horse shit and called, I don't know if you can call it horseshit, but like he called it nuts. Yeah. yeah right. Um, does he help Danielle Smith here? Is this a win for Danielle Smith? Because her response is ultimately, this is interference. You're ill-informed. You're the acting leader, right? A little bit of a rib to him and says, finally, this is disrespectful to a large and growing majority of UCP members. Does Jason Kenny coming out on this just further embolden? Let's put a, embolden inside. This is strategically help Danielle Smith now that we've got a fixed universe of voters, Carter. It's not like moderates can go buy memberships on the heels of kind of hearing this from Jason Kenney and kind of coming to their senses. I don't think it helps her. I think that, you know, Dwayne Bratt's mm. article today, uh, a number of different pieces that that have come out that are universally deriding her and taking, you know, the premier side. And again, uh, kind of like like myself, a little more than Corey, you know, like Corey and I both had a, a a nuanced position about Jason Kenny's thoughts before, you know, we were more nuanced. We didn't come out in support of him. We didn't uh, come out against him, but the, the challenges that Daniel Smith has occupied the space again, there is no oxygen left for Sonny to get, you know, to start cultivating or switching votes. There's no Leela here momentum that's coming through. There's no Rebecca Schultz talking about this brand new policy idea that really matters to her. That's really going to make a big difference to, to the conservative party. Instead, the, the oxygen as it has been for the last five or six weeks is completely taken up by Dan, Danielle Smith. And sometimes, you know, if you've got first place, you're best just to let yourself on fire sometimes and, and suck up all that oxygen. She still is in, the driver's seat. Um, Jason Kenny going after, her, I don't think it gives her a bump, but you know, if they're still talking about you and they're still spelling your name, right. It's not necessarily a bad day. Or I'll ask you the same question. Is this a win for Danielle Smith? That Jason Kenny spending this disproportionate energy, kind of like the rest of the last five weeks, as Carter has mentioned, the media, all of us been like, this is hers to lose sort of uh, narrative. Is this a win for her? It's not clear to me. Um, mm. And so as much as I said, I'm not sure if this is part of a greater strategy. It seemed more it was like a tactic and a reaction in the moment than it was necessarily part of a strategy. There's a couple of things you've got to keep in mind. One is that uh, the existing membership base before this leadership was called did support Jason Kenny. So uh-huh. if you think about that, like that block's not going to be hegemony. It's not going to all go to Jason Kenny's, uh, you know, selection or deselection, right? It's not... It's not all going to follow one way or the other, but 51.4% of a rather large portion of people, the membership of the UCP was not small at that time, uh, supported Jason Kenney. So him being quite critical of Danielle Smith could very well be be damaging for Danielle Smith. The, the other thing is, Stephen's exactly right. There's not a lot of voices out in support of Danielle Smith today. And even the people who say the premier shouldn't have done it are saying, but Danielle Smith's idea is even worse. And I think about Dwayne yeah. Bratt's 
column in CBC today as, as a perfect example of that. Um, the flip side is, of course, that if this is actually a majority view of the UCP, if you are making the election about the Alberta Sovereignty Act and Daniel Smith's the only one supporting it, Daniel Smith will win. Yeah. Not clear to me. Not clear mm. to me it is a majority view. And even if it was the majority view right now, not clear to me how durable that is. So we talk a lot about, um, well, I say all the time, beware of novel concepts. You know, you can put something out and if somebody's thought about it for one second and say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, it will take maybe two seconds of effort to get them to change their mind. It's not as though people have been thinking about the Alberta Sovereignty Act for the last 20 years. It's not one of these big cultural touchstones. You may have ideas about Alberta's place in confederation, but the actual nuts and bolts that Daniel Smith is putting on the table here, trying to build something out of, that's not something that's going to be a strongly held belief of many. Uh, and so will it survive contact with criticism? Uh, you know, the unconstitutionality of it, the risks, the laughingstock, the idea it might turn us to Quebec in the 70s, which, by the way, I'll take the opportunity to remind people, Quebec in the 70s had lower corporate taxes than Ontario and the banks went to Ontario from Quebec. Mm. Right, because the instability in Quebec was so damaging to economic interests. So when these things are all thrown on the table in that way, who knows? Maybe even if it is a majority opinion, maybe Jason Kenney, maybe other candidates who are whispering in Jason Kenney's ear have rightly assessed this thing will not survive contact with reality. Carter, well, talk to me about Smith's response here. Right, I said I want to go through the players. We talked about Kenney, yeah. and his strategy. Assess Smith's strategy here. The prongs I gave you, right? Calling him acting leader, going, you know, ribbing him a bit, saying he doesn't understand it, ill-informed and disrespectful. Calling it interference and saying that this is uh, disrespectful as an extension to that point to the large and growing majority of UCP members. What do you make of her messaging? Well, I mean, it's it's fascinating because she's obviously trying to go after Jason Kenney as as you know, the same, I think using the same techniques that, that Joti Gondek used to go after Jason Kenney. You know, if you go after Jason Kenney, he's the big boogeyman and you're able to gather more voters. Um, I think that the problem is that, the you know, she she is currently the front runner, right? And mm -hmm. the traditional psychology of a front runner is that if you don't vote for them on the first ballot, you're not very likely to vote for them on the second or your, for your second or third choice. Most people actually get to the top in, when they're the front runner, not because of votes moving to them, but by votes falling off the ballot. And, and that's a longer explanation that I need to do at a different time. But basically, people stop voting and then the number of people, the number of votes being counted shrinks, which means the number of votes that you require to win also shrinks. So Danielle Smith may be putting herself in a position this week by going so hard against Jason Kenney where she's not able to pick up anybody else's votes. By making this about the Sovereignty Act, you are with Danielle Smith if you're with the Sovereignty Act, and maybe that's 40% of the votes or 40% of the people in the UCP, but the other 60% are like defining themselves as against the Sovereignty Act. This may be something that actually hurts her in the long run. And, and we'll only find out, you know, in, in a couple of months when the switches start. But um, it may also give people like Brian Jean or, uh, well, I'll just say Brian Jean because it looks like um, uh, the other guy is all over supporting uh, Smith anyways. But if Brian Jean supporters don't go to Danielle Smith because they think that the Sovereignty Act is a step too far, then she's really shot herself in the foot. Corey, from, from the perspective of the final player here, I'm going to just call the lieutenant governor, just so not to make it weird. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, um, it's not weird. Whoever whoever would be in that office. Yeah, um, whoever it is, and, yeah. And whatever sort of podcast uh, that one of the relatives would have. Um, Corey, uh, the LG here. Mm -hmm. How does one who's in that position prevent themselves from wearing this? Because this could be really interesting from that perspective, right? Where, where you know, they may have to sign a particular grant royal assent to something that is deeply unpopular. Um, talk to me about the strategy here for, for the lieutenant governor, right? As, as, as they think about maybe not their own personal perspective and, and how they present to community, but how they kind of balance the political with the constitutional in that sense. Your, your thoughts from, from that perspective and the strategy involved, because there's certainly strategy involved as much as there's lawyers involved around, around that. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, so whether you're the queen, the governor general, the lieutenant governor, you are 
the personification of the state and you mm-hmm. have to act in a certain machine-like fashion really rooted in precedent so uh, as these situations come up and quite often they're one-offs we don't have situations where the lg or gg or queen even on a daily basis is having to deal with do i dissolve this government or not it's part of why they make such great drama when you know harper tries to dissolve a uh, parliament before he can see if he's got the support of parliament all, all of those things proroguing i guess i mean and um we we will see this thing i think unfold based on the details so let's put it this way if we've got a situation where the act itself is clearly egregious of federal law if there's some sort of poking in it the the lg is going to have a much harder time actually signing it and may actually be feeling a little bit more beholden to that uh you know that context in 1937 where it is clearly or there's reason to believe that it could be deeply unconstitutional and require some sort of weighing in by the courts there. I also think um, if this thing passes by the skin of its teeth and there's a big mutiny mm-hmm. of UCP MLAs, that in some ways, to your point about strategy rather than precedent, will feel very different than if the UCP hangs together. Because um, then you're going to have a situation where it's a, a clear majority of the legislature has interpreted things one way, as opposed to a very slim majority and you got to consider that in the context of an election that would be coming anyhow. And, and maybe it's good just to have a bit of a cooling off period. But again, to, to even look at those things and have those conversations, you'd want to be able to point to some sort of precedent that that's been done in the past. And I simply don't know what the precedents have been across um, you know, the Commonwealth. If I were the LG, though, I would right now be encouraging my staff to do a bit of a canvassing of that and try mm. to understand what exactly has been the precedent, reaching out to whatever counterparts I need at the governor general's office, uh, and even going as far as to the United Kingdom and, and seeing if there is you know, some sort of parliamentarians who have deeper understanding of, of what may have occurred in, for example, India or you know, um, South Africa or, or anywhere else that has been you know, in a similar kind of governance structure in the past. Because you don't want to be trying to figure this out at the 11th hour just when this thing drops on your lap. So it's tough. I mean, at the end of the day, what the LG wants to do is say, I'm just I'm just the machine operating. Here's the various precedents that are out there. Here's why I'm acting in this particular fashion now over to the courts or over to the people or over to whomever, or it just gets to be the law because this is how the machine has determined I'm supposed mm. to operate. What the LG needs to avoid is that Danielle Smith says on very flimsy grounds, Trudeau's appointee to lieutenant governor has once again thwarted the will of Albertans, right? And I think when you're talking about the Alberta Sovereignty Act, that's a unique risk. That's a unique risk because of the way all of these things are appointed. And in some ways it becomes it becomes self-affirming as to this is why we need the Alberta Sovereignty Act. I was so, going to just bring that up. I'm glad you did, Corey, because Carter, this was exactly the point I wanted to bring up around, does Danielle Smith make the LG role political? And And the broader question to you, Carter, getting to you to react to Corey is what's the strategy play for an LG in this situation? The Queen's representative, Corey broadened it, right? It could have been the the Queen's rep in a different province, could have been the GG, could have been a different jurisdiction, different country. Uh, what is the strategy play here from all the pieces we know that are on the board right now? The strategy play for an LG is the strategy play that my parents told me when I was a young person. You know, don't worry about doing what other people think is great. Do what you think is right. And the LG needs to look at things and say, okay, what is the actual right thing to do here? Um, the right thing to do is, uh, you know, the first thing to do is to look for precedent, right? So the precedent of 1937 tells us something. There's other precedents of LGs and GGs acting uh, in specific manners, right? Uh, some precedents we look back on, I think it was the 1970s when in Australia, when a GG basically overturned a government um, that we look back on and say, hey, that wasn't such a great idea. Um, and now, you know, but other things we look back on and say, well, you know, the 1937 precedent may stand as an, as the right thing to do. And, and there's a, you know, as Corey has suggested, there's a series of smarter people than, than us who will understand this and be advising the LG. The LG just simply needs to sit back and say, what's, you know, if, if there's counter proposals, if there's two different ideas, if Danielle Smith's trying to politicize the outcome, don't fall for any of those traps. Certainly, the LG cannot be Trudeau's appointed LG, right? The LG is appointed by the only one person. That's the queen, right? When the queen, you know, a recommendation is made, 
but the appointment is made by the queen. Stand for that recommendation. Remind people that, the, that this is not a position that is sought. This is a position that is simply granted. You know, this is a service position. It is granted to people. And you look at the, la- the series of LGs that we've had, and I count your mother-in-law as part of this. Um, we have had some spectacular LGs in the last 15, 20 years. You know, whether it was Normie Kwong, our, our first uh, Chinese uh, LG, or uh, Lois Mitchell. Um, you know, we have had some great, great people. And they've done great things in our community, and they should not allow themselves to be tarnished um, by the politics of politicians. Stand up, be the, re- the queen's representative, and do what the queen, what you think the queen thinks would be right. And you'll have lots of advice from really smart people that aren't named Corey Hogan and Stephen Carter. We're going to leave that segment there. Moving on to our next segment, our next segment, Strong Amongst Equals. I'm surprised we haven't had a chance to talk about this, guys. I want to go to Ontario. I want to talk about Doug Ford, and I want to talk about what I call and what he calls the strong mayor legislation, Carter. It's not it's not his actual yeah. term, but it's legislation it's yeah. that was tabled last week that would allow mayors. I mean, Doug Ford is obsessed with municipal politics. Let's put that on, on the table for those that don't know. Um, that would allow the mayors in certain cities to override council approval of a bylaw, such as a zoning bylaw that allow... Um, that would hamper a set of provincial priorities that will be set out in later regulations. Examples include government officials gave way to include building 1.5 million homes in 10 years as part of critical infrastructure. If the province wants that, the the strong mayor could override council's will, but of course they could override the mayor if they have two thirds majority uh, against the mayor's vote uh, or the mayor's veto. Corey, I put some of the stuff on the table. Is there anything else that, that you know, or, may have seen the legislation that you feel like is, is worthy to kind of lay out as context before we discuss, A, what's, uh, is this a good idea and what are some of the ramifications of it uh, going forward? Well, it's not a new idea. In Canada, almost everywhere we use a mayor and council model where, and, and I've said this in other contexts, the mayor is just kind of a super councillor. It's a councillor at large. It has the power of the bully pulpit, but often not too much more than that or or powers that are softer powers rather than hard codified powers where you you can talk to administration, you can get a certain additional level of information because you are the mayor, but that's not necessarily anything more than a council decision away from being changed, right? And so you still need to sort of maintain that there's a council here. What Doug Ford is proposing is a model that's much more common in the United States, which is the idea of the strong mayor, where the mayor, and it mirrors the American system more generally, where they have mm-hmm. governors, where they have presidents, and, and they have mayors. And the mayor has that executive authority within the city. So you see this in, for example, New York or, I, I believe, Dallas. And what happens is the mayor has a staff. The mayor has an agenda. The mayor has a number of tools to meet that agenda. And it makes them more than just a counselor at large who has you know, kind of this primus inter pares thing where they're the first among equals of the rest of council. And what Doug Ford's talking about specifically is the ability of the mayor to propose the budget. So this is my budget. Here it goes forward, rather than it running through this council administration route that Mm -hmm, most mm -hmm. Canadian cities are familiar with. It would give the mayor veto over areas of provincial interest, I think is how it's phrased or something to that effect. That's right. And that veto could be overridden, but that would take two thirds of council. I believe it gives the mayor the ability to appoint the chief administrative officer and yeah. the department heads. So all of a sudden, the top parts of the the bureaucracy within the municipal public service is is um, you know they're working towards the mayor's agenda in a strong way, and that's all very different. And that's very different from the Canadian model more generally. I mean, when we think about the mayor and council model, we're more familiar with. In some ways. We've talked about the differences from party politics, but it's you can see how it has kind of this cultural tie to the idea that the legislature is in charge and that, you know, your, your authority comes from the legislature, not from like one individual elected leader. So it's different. But one of the arguments in favor of it is um, maybe you can break some log jams. Maybe you can get more things done. Maybe it will be less of a, you know, a bureaucracy legislature dance and, and you have the executive providing like that impetus to action which was one of the big arguments in favor of the U.S. presidency when it was first created, right? Like it becomes this this force, this like heat that's boiling the pot. And um, it's hard to ignore the fact that part of this is tied up in the fact that Doug Ford doesn't like 
councils. And if you'll mm-hmm. recall, his brother Rob Ford was stripped of most of his powers by the Toronto Council in kind of those last days of Rob, where you know he was under all sorts of scandal and all of that. And it, it fundamentally changes the balance uh, of municipal politics in Ontario in, in fascinating ways. And I'm not sure all of them are um, are going to be beloved by everybody uh, once they start executing. Carter, long time coming. Good idea. Great idea. Absolutely great idea. Really? Right, na- right now, uh, Chief really? Administrator. I, I thought oh, I'd yeah. set you up for the... Okay, keep going. Make, make, make the justification because I'm curious to hear Corey's reaction to it too. Right now, because of the weak mayor model, the... Uh, CAOs, chief administrative officers in cities and towns just simply have too much power. They are the ones who run their city. They are the ones who make all the decisions. And by uh, manipulating what information even goes to council, uh, they get to have decisions that are made in their favor all of the time. They get to appoint the, chief, the, the legal officers. They get to bring in all of their, their, their lieutenants. They literally control what information gets to council because they're the ones writing all the reports and signing off on all of those reports. Um, that person, um, because they've got 15 bosses in the, in the case of, uh, of Calgary or uh, eight bosses or nine bosses in a lot of other centers, five bosses in the local municipalities, some, they, they wind up running the table. And the elected voice becomes weakened uh, because uh, of what is this really weak model that reduces how much can be done. Uh, and it also increases the strength and power of the NIMBY. So when we see something like in Calgary, where, where something is brought forward, where we're going to change the way that we're zoning properties uh, across the board, uh, a very small group of people lose their shit. And all of a sudden, uh, the legislation is, is pushed off to the side. Something like secondary suites, which is in, has 75% approval in Calgary, took almost uh, 10 years to do uh, from a very motivated mayor. And uh, the, the mayor was, of course, Nahid Denchi. And he had to push super hard in order to get secondary suites through. And it took his third council before he was actually able to do it, despite consistent 75% approval from the people that they served. Council, uh, by having the weak model, by listening to the NIMBYs, by listening to the small voices, um, neutered themselves and cut off, the, cut off their ability to actually govern effectively. So my view is uh, strong mayor model absolutely works. Two-thirds is uh, a low enough bar that if council needs to get over it in order to, to hold the mayor accountable um, for bad decisions, they should, be, they should have no problem getting over it. This is, this is not a high, high bar that they have to get over if there's uh, egregious behavior. And by giving the mayor control, it actually puts the uh, control of city government back in the hands of the, the electorate. Because now they get to choose the person who's actually running their city instead of having a person who's appointed for five years at a time uh, be there, the person who's running the city. And I'll tell you, there's some really weak people running cities. I want, I want to come back to that actual last point you made in a second, but I want to get Corey's reaction on this, Corey. Good yeah, idea? Well, uh, <coughs> Carter says great as, idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly not as keen on it as Stephen. His CAO argument is not a bad one. I, I do think that the balance between the electeds and the bureaucracy in municipal contexts in Canada skews pretty strongly towards the bureaucracy, oh. uh, really strongly in many cases. And a lot of that is because of what he's talked about, the idea of having 15 bosses rather than one clearly defined boss where there's the authority, you get to manage the information flows. Um, and so as a result, you have less political action and you have more kind of bureaucratic action, but I... or. Let's bureaucratic say public inaction. service action. Bureaucratic Well, let's inaction. call it the public service is, is calling okay. more of the shots here. Um, and, you know, you can, you can love that or you can hate that. Certainly, it is a model that sees the elected officials and the will of the city be put forward less than kind of these, this Mandarin class within the, within the you know, the uh, city council or sorry, the city administration that gets to sort of determine the shots. But, you know, it's not as though this model is so deeply foreign. It's kind of like a board CEO model. You think of mm-hmm. council as the board. You think of the mayor as the chair of the board. You think of the city manager as the CEO. And if if they kind of took more of that approach, I wonder if they couldn't get a little bit more done, which sort of leads into what I would say is, is what I want to, you know, I understand the challenges they're trying to resolve with a strong mayor model. I think that the points are valid that you've got the bureaucracy not necessarily being responsive to the citizenry 
And there are some deep, deep challenges for that. Particularly, I would agree that the bureaucracy tends to be much more responsive to negative voices, you know, criticism that comes in. It's easier to do nothing than to do something. And if if you're sitting in the job as a city manager and you know doing something's going to get you attacked and doing nothing is just maintaining the status quo is not, you have all of the levers you need to kind of maintain the status quo, right? But there are other solutions. We could have more of a party system at the municipal level. We could actually just do away with the position of mayor or make mayor elected by council and almost have like the prime minister, premier, mayor, all chosen in the same way as it goes down, where all of a sudden that authority is not because you're one vote out of 15, but because you carry the votes of council. And that would change the relationship with the administration as well. Be a little bit more like our Canadian model in other contexts. I don't know. I don't know if I would jump so strongly into the strong mayor system because the the flip side is you could have a real divide between the legislative body, which is council and the mayor. And we don't have a lot of experience with that. We don't have a lot of experience with that in this country. And I'm not sure it would get us what we want. Well, I'm working on a system right now in, in, sir, in British Columbia where they do run uh-huh. party systems, right? And, and they're called electoral associations. The mayor uh, essentially puts together the party and the party then chooses the, you know, the, the, uh, the councillors are going to run for them. And sometimes those councillors stick together for the course of a term, giving essentially a strong mayor model. And other times they don't. Um, but there's, there's weaknesses to that as well. Um, by having a strong mayor and independently elected councillors, you don't run into what we've seen in provincial governments uh, and federal governments where you're electing a mayoralty, a mayoral, mayoral dictator, right? The, the chief executive dictator is a, is a problem. Um, this, the systems that we should be advocating for should be ones that balance off the opportunity for dissent and allow for... Um, corrective processes that exist electorally or through actual vote counting rather than simple whips. And I think that the, the whipping process at a municipal lesson level is probably where the weakness lies, where if you have independent councillors who can then face off against an independent mayor, I think you have a much stronger form of government. And I think that that's essentially what Doug Ford's uh, suggesting. I mean, look at us today. We're, we're praising Jason Kenney. We're fra- praising Doug Ford. I mean, I don't, I don't even know who we are anymore. We've just become three white guys. Um, Carter, I'm going to stick with you for a second. Uh, Corey, I'll, I'll hold your hold your horses. Would would candidate recruitment be easier? Would we get better candidates if we had a strong mayor system? The reason I ask is all three of us, in some degree, have tried to knock on doors, go for thousands of coffees, convincing people to do stuff, especially in municipal politics where it's often harder. Would a yeah. strong mayor system actually help like from 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 two guys who've had experience recruiting folks would this actually help the quality of candidates that one could be able to get to run for mayor is it more attractive to know that this is a quote-unquote power you'd have or is it is it too sparingly perhaps used or or plausible that we'd kind of still have the same pipeline considerations and, and issues that we've talked about before for political candidates I have had people say to me, like, why would I want to be mayor? I'm not going to have any, you know, I'm just a counselor with a, with a bigger paycheck. And the bigger paycheck isn't large enough to warrant, you know, to push uh, jumping in there. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get better count, better candidates. I'm not sure that, that this is the magic sauce that creates a better candidate, Zane. I think it's one step mm. that could get us towards a better candidate. Um, I think Corey made the argument, I don't remember when, one of the nine, 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 nine nines. But mm-hmm. Corey made the argument that, uh, you know, there was a time when a politician's salary was in the top 1%, and now we're lucky to see it in kind of the top 10%. So I think that we've seen a real degradation in terms of both polit- you know, social standing by being a, po- a politician as well as economic. Corey, what do you think of that, the quality of candidates? Is there any merit to that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting argument. It's certainly not one that I had... Um... It's sort of given a lot of thought to in the past, but it would be a more prominent job. It'd be a more powerful job. You'd be more likely to get your agenda through. You'd be less beholden to the the whims of council, right? I mean, especially the power to, to choose the senior leaders and the power to, to present the budget. Those are serious fucking powers. I mean, even yeah. setting aside the veto, those are significant powers. And so, um, sure, that seems like a much better job 
that certainly to me seems like it's less ceremonial and more weighty and, and you'd be able to do a lot of the things that you want to do. But I want to throw a bit of a thought exercise out here. Yeah. Because like, I, you know, I'm just not sure if we have as, you know, Canadians really thought about the potential for gridlock that this could create within major centers. I think about Toronto running under this model during the Rob Ford era. Imagine you had a council, a legislative body that was dead set against the mayor. And then you had the mayor who was able to create the budget and to hire fire the most senior people within mm-hmm, the organization. Mm-hmm. What would that fight have looked like there? You know, I think it would have been uglier. I think it would have been much more detrimental to Toronto. And I think much less would get done. So in this scenario, Doug Ford was effect or Rob Ford was effectively sidelined in the scenario where we have, um, you know, a strong mayor system. It's, it's matter hitting antimatter. You know, there's, there's things blowing up all over the place. You'd potentially have senior administrators saying, I've got to resign him appointing all of a sudden Doug Ford is the new chief administrative officer. You would have the inability to pass any legislation because Rob Ford would have vetoed it. You would have had a budget that would be rejected because it was zeroing out all sorts of things related to the enemies. I think it would be pretty fucking crazy. And um, that happens basically whenever you try to set up these balances of power. And historically in Canada, we don't do that, right? We, We have all sorts of these different bodies, like the premier's office, the prime minister's office. But at the end of the day, they all get their authority from a legislative body. And if you can hold a majority there, you can do most anything. And if you can't, you can't. But what we're talking about here is having two different groups of people responsible for the same thing. And that is a recipe for gridlock. Sometimes that's the point. Certainly the Americans would say that's the point. I'm not sure that's in our interest. Carter, that's... uh... Your retort there, because I was going to move on to something slightly different, but I'm I'm curious because you think it's a great idea. But Corey gives kind of this example where the Rob Ford example, right? Where kind of a well, bit of a not, shame that's the not hold against up him, the, but okay, yeah, well, why not, not hold though? up I the Rob an, Ford example? Why not? He was you, the mayor of Toronto, the city no, that's going to be getting and, this power. And, and don't you and don't you think that a mayor that could have this power? could actually be quite polarizing to a council, even though they weren't coming in. And all of a sudden they're making these veto style or very executive style, you know, power moves. You can alienate a council very quickly that way. So the position that Corey mentions, I don't think this is necessarily an outlier. No, I don't know if there's several you, proof points, let, but let, it, it could manifest itself. I think it's a fair counter argument. I'm curious to hear your reaction to it. Well, my reaction is let's not hold up the Rob Ford era as some great opportunity of governance actually occurring. It's not like things really worked well when Rob was there. Um, you know, Rob was 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 stymied, but the entire city stopped working. The there were massive problems with the CAO. There were massive problems with uh, the people who were working in those offices. Both the appointees of Rob Ford within his own government. I mean, basically, if you were appointed by Rob Ford, you were given the opportunity to write your own book when you left. This these this wasn't a functional government. Uh, under the system that we currently have. Let's not pretend that it was going to become all of a sudden less functional uh, because now we've got a different form of government. It didn't work the way we have it, and it probably wouldn't work with the way that it's going to be done. But Rob Ford's not an example that you try and build in a system around. You try and build a system that's got a lot more, uh, you you know, that's built around uh, more sane choices because ultimately... If you're electing insane people, you're going to get insane government. There is no means around the electorate choosing, making bad choices. There's no way around that by building a system. It has to be the electorate being responsible for the shit that they choose. And they chose Rob Ford. It was a bad choice. Don't hold back the choices of of bettering uh, a governing structure because Rob Ford was a lunatic. Corey, I want to. This might be too much of a lift, so so we'll we'll maybe just ask you for like one of what I'm about to ask, which is strategy implications from a strong mayor system. Is there is there one that comes to mind? Uh, Carter, I'll give you a bit of a time as I ask Corey about this. But as we think about the strong mayor system, not exactly like you know the parliamentary sort of style system where you you elect the the party and and therefore uh, you know as you mentioned, Corey is an alternative to this. But what's one strategy implication that you feel is interesting or is noteworthy, um, or even if it isn't those two, that's um, 
perhaps a new feature of a, of a strong mayor system uh, that may not be from a weak mayor system or the current system. Anything come to mind for you? Yeah, I think that in particular, when you have a strong mayor system married to a party system, and in Toronto, there are quite a few political parties, you're going to mm-hmm. have you are fundamentally changing the nature of government in cities because what's going to happen is you're going to end up having almost like the prime minister of council, potentially, who is maybe in support of, maybe at odds with the mayor who has this additional authority, but maybe not from the same place or it doesn't feel like it's from the same place anymore. And and so it could just fundamentally change the dynamic of cities in ways that people have not fully considered. Uh, I also think that one of the challenges with bringing in a model like this and one of the strategic considerations is we're talking about it in terms of it makes the mayor stronger, but anything that makes the mayor stronger makes council weaker. And by taking that authority away from councillors, you're making that job less appealing. And it's Mm. already not that appealing of a job, right? It pays less than the, the provincial politicians get, than the federal politicians get. You have everybody calling your cell phone at any given part of the day to say, my street light's out. You know, it is 24-7 in a way that even 24-7 politicians in other levels of government would say, not for me. That's mental. I don't want to deal with that (laughs) whatsoever. And now you're taking away its authority and you're giving it to a strong mayor as well. So what does that mean for the quality of council? That's another strategic consideration you got to think about. Carter, I'll leave that same question to you as we wrap up the segment. A strategic consideration that you find fascinating or interesting as a result of... uh, a strong mayor system being implemented, uh, I should say potentially, but it's more than likely going to happen in Ontario here. Uh, the mayor having control of the budgeting process is fantastic. You know, the, I mean, any anybody who's done budgeting knows that there's many different ways of presenting the information and information that's coming from administration. Um, you know, for for example, the city of Calgary just passed a budget uh, where all of a sudden it was pointed out that there may have been a couple hundred million dollars coming from uh, unanticipated reserves. Well, they increased taxes uh, by $60 million. There was no discussion at all about a couple hundred million dollars coming down the pipe from administration. They wanted the ability to have that type of flexibility in the, in, in the future. They didn't tell anybody. Um, I know the mayor said afterwards that she knew. She didn't know. I was there. Um, so this is... This gives the opportunity for actual better outcomes uh, because the administration's not uh, misleading counsel. And I, I keep coming back to that because administrations um, control what information is presented to counsel. And that means that administrations are incentivized to uh, provide information that, that ha- enhances their abilities to make their own decisions. Uh, and I've seen that from my own personal experience. It is a... Uh, system that is uh, challenging for the electeds to try and keep up with. I'm going to leave that segment there. Move it on to our final segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. Stephen Carter, we did this for you, so we start with you. I think I know your answer. Are you in or out? You have to choose. Are you in or out on Doug Ford's strong mayor legislation? Big fan of Doug Ford. Always have been. I'm going to say I'm in (laughs) on Doug Ford's legislation. Corey, I don't know where you're going to go with this. Are you in or out on on, on this? It seems like you've you've made both sides of the argument here, but not 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 to say we've comprehensively gone through them. But you in or out your, yourself on this strong mayor legislation in Ontario? You know, I think I'm out. Uh, I understand what he's trying to do. I'm not even opposed to everything he's trying to do, but I think there were smaller changes that could have brought some of this out. And like I said, I think maybe if I ruled the world, the first thing I would try was stop direct electing the mayor. Interesting. Corey, I'm going to go with the next one here. Uh, Doug Schweitzer is saying that he's going to leave as an MLA in Calgary Elbow. He's already indicated that uh, this, of course, talking here in our uh, province of Alberta, he's already indicated that he's no longer, um, you know, going to run for reelection, but now he's leaving early. Is there any value, Corey, yes or no, for the UCP to call a by-election? They don't have to if it's within a year, but is there any strategic value for them to call a by-election um, in, in that sense, cause they can, they don't have to, they can, uh, in that sense. Well, there's some ambiguity on that point because mm, of the yeah. way different pieces of legislation are written, but I think the consensus has drifted towards, they do need to call one within six months, uh, okay. regardless okay, of okay. what the fixed election date stuff has said. 
Uh, but let's even just say, is there if they even thought they were going to polls in six months, would there be an advantage to going? Yes. Um, if they have a situation where the leader is not in the legislature, uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think that that's the by-election that's going to work for me. But if Danielle Smith managed to win in a place like Calgary Elbow, I think we'd all be singing a different tune. Yeah, interesting point. I wouldn't do it, generally speaking, but there are potential advantages available. Carter, would you do it? Advantages? Well, I'm going to just begin by kind of echoing Corey's point about what the legislation actually says. I I have read the legislation recently. It refers to uh, the fifth year as the final year and the fourth year as the final year. It is confusing. So um, Hmm. regardless, assuming that that it does need to be called or or it doesn't need to be called and they have the opportunity, I wouldn't call it. I'd leave it open. Uh, and I would also keep in mind that Jason Kenney's seat's most likely going to be vacated relatively quick as well. I don't see him sitting as a backbencher in a Danielle Smith government. So that takes down to 80, 85 seats. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised even to see some people, uh, some more people either retire or cross to independent uh, rather than serve out their term serving in a Danielle Smith government. Uh, if enough of them do, um, Danielle herself could face, you know, the the unenviable position of going to your mother-in-law and saying, I no longer have the support of my, of, of, of the government and we're going to need to go to an election, uh, which uh, Corey and I were, were shamelessly speculating, mostly me. Uh, Corey's not so much a spe- shameless <laughs> speculator, um, but uh, he plays it, he plays know, it too safe. He does, you know, like where's his crazy predictions, you know, like uh, that's what people tune in for. That's what I'm told. Carter liability or asset. For Daniel Smith, the Alberta Sovereignty Act, as we record now on Monday, August 15th at 10, 12 p.m., as it stands in this particular moment, is it an asset or is it a liability for her? I don't want to live in the world that says that uh, illegal legislation is an asset. So I'm going to have to say that it's a liability. The fact that <laughs> but she's you're found also fi- a raw practitioner of strategy. Is it an asset or a liability? I wouldn't do this strategy. It's a liability. You wouldn't. I know you wouldn't. I, wouldn't I know do you this wouldn't, but because it's her. wrong. It's wrong, and she shouldn't be doing it either. She should be ashamed of herself. And I say that as someone who likes Danielle. But this is a this is this is this is the worst type of politicking, the worst type of government. I think all three of us agree. But Corey, is it an asset or a liability strategically for Danielle Smith today? I don't know. Um, one of the things I think is very interesting is that. There is a universe where Jason Kenney knew exactly what he was doing. He did it right after the membership cutoff. He would have known the basic size and composition of the membership of the party. He would probably have a sense as to whether, um, you know, these, you know, this, there were enough people sold from the Danielle Smith camp to sort of override where the, where the other camps were. These are things we can only speculate about from the outside. And maybe he said, eh, you know, maybe it just needs a nudge. Maybe maybe this is a little unpopular with certain groups of people and we can push it out. Kind of the strongest evidence that it's a liability is that Jason Kenney jumped on it like this. Yeah. Strongest evidence is an asset. She's selling all the memberships by all accounts. So um, unclear, but I think it will become rapidly clear. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a good sense. Final question to you, Corey. I'll start with you. Um, the House of Lords, too small? Uh, just the right size. I'd make it smaller. Um, abolish the House of Lords um, because the aristocracy must perish. Not the individuals, but, you know, the positions. Uh, Carter, the House of Lords, you and I have agreed um, earlier on this podcast, uh, smaller than we thought, uh, but too small, Carter. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, just small enough to hold someone like Conrad Black. So that's fine by me. We're going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 999.89s. Yes, I'm not saying it. Of the strategist. Oh, boo. My name is Abe Velge. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Give what they want. Give what they want.